Bayfields Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Esther, God's Perfect Work Through Imperfect People. Today, Lead Pastor David Fossil has us look at a conflict that occurs in chapter 7 of Esther. He begins by asking us, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to live with enemies and problem people that create conflict? Listeners were led to some strategies that will be helpful in resolving conflict as we go about our daily lives. This uh, newspaper reporter from a small town was interviewing uh, one of their uh, uh, key people in town that had just turned 100 years uh, old. He, he was celebrating his 100th uh, a birthday, and so they decided to do a little short story of him in the newspaper. The reporter went over and, and asked the, the guy who had turned to 100, he says, what are you most proud of? And he goes, well, what I'm most proud of is I don't have an, uh, one enemy in the entire world. And the reporter was like, wow, that's inspiring. That's, that's wonderful. I'm going to write about that a little bit. And, and right at that moment, the old guy says, yep, I've outlived every single one of them. <laughs> Um, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to live with enemies, right? Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to live with problem people, people that create conflict in our lives? I, I, I wrote down a list of people that can create conflict in our lives. Irritating classmates, backstabbing workers, obnoxious family members, disrespectful neighbors, suck the life out of you friends, mean bosses, and difficult church people. Huh? It's true. Some of you sitting by a few. You know who you are, you know. Uh, I, I'm not much into poetry, but one of my favorite poems is this. It says, to dwell above with saints we love, now that will be bliss and glory. To dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story, you know? Um, you know, part of life, um, part of growing up, part of becoming mature is learning how to deal with conflict, learning how to deal with, with problems. It, it's something that, that makes you mature. You've got to learn how to do it because life is difficult. Life is full of conflict. In our story so far in the book of Esther, uh, there's been one guy, one dude that's created a ton of conflict. His name is Haman. He's the prime minister. And he has just caused problems and conflict for the queen and for her cousin Mordecai. And this morning, if you look at your study guide, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about conflict, resolution, principles, or strategies. And uh, so I, I almost want you to start thinking about someone in your mind that you have maybe a conflict with. Um, small conflict, uh, big conflict, and that'll make it practical. Now today, um, the way I'm going to present it is a little bit different. What I'm going to start with, if you notice that first page, I'm actually going to outline the story for you for the first three quarters of our study, all I'm going to do is I'm going to outline what the story is about. And then at the end, the last 10 minutes or so, I'm going to give you the principles that I think are applicable and helpful. So you'll see, we're going to start out and the story begins by Esther spilling the beans. For now, two, three chapters, she's kind of held back this issue she has, this question she, she has for the king. And finally today in chapter seven, she's going to tell him what's going on. Verse one, begins and here's what we read so the king and haman went to queen esther's banquet and as they were drinking wine on the second day now i, I want you to notice and we've already talked about this the road to a man's heart is through his through his stomach she's not dumb she is setting the stage this is not a meal this is not a picnic this is not a barbecue they call it a banquet for a reason and everything that implies she's having two 
banquets for the king because she's got this big question she's going to ask him, right? So she's trying to set the stage. She's trying to create the environment. It also tells us that they were drinking wine every single time that the king has some sort of gathering, some sort of party, he's drinking. This guy likes to, to put a few back. Now, I spent a couple, couple of weeks ago, we talked about this, um, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here other than to make a quick reference to conflict and how it interrelates with drinking. Please have the discernment. If you're someone that every once in a while will have a drink, please have the discernment and the wisdom to know and admit that sometimes excessive drinking can lead to conflict and arguments. Would you agree? Some of us, the arguments and conflict we have at home is for no other reason than someone's drinking too much. So right from the get-go, just please have the wisdom to know that about yourself. Some of us still have to work on this a little bit. It's not sinful to have a drink. It is sinful to excessively drink and be controlled by it, okay? So I'm going to leave that, and we're going to keep moving on. The rest of verse 2 says the following. The king again asked, Queen Esther, what, what is it you want? What's your petition? It will be given to you. I'll give you what you want. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted to you. Now, um, everything we know about Xerxes from this book, the Bible, everything we know about King Xerxes from historical accounts, everything we know about him from the movie 300, right? This guy's crazy, right? He is not the most patient dude. So I emphasize the word again because he, this is now the third time he's asked, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? What is it that you want? He keeps asking, why won't she answer him? Maybe she's afraid. Maybe she doesn't have her wording down yet, doesn't know how to say it. Maybe there's a timing issue. That's what most people think. She's waiting for the right time. What we do know is why she hasn't given an answer. You've got to imagine that her heart is in her throat right now. You've got to imagine she's her, her, her palms are sweaty and she's perspiring because, because she's about to ask him something that's a big deal. It's a big. She is sitting across the table from the two most powerful men in the world, the king of Persia and the prime minister of Persia, both of them known to be quite impulsive, crazy, and at times very, very mean. She doesn't know how this is going to turn out. He's promised her half the kingdom, which is hyperbole. He's not literally going to give her half the kingdom. He's basically just saying, I'll, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, right? Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So verse three begins and we read the following. The queen Esther answered, speaking to her husband, the king, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, again, understand her thinking. She's trying to set it up. She just doesn't refer to him as hubby. Okay, your majesty. She's now speaking to him in an official capacity. He's the king. Your majesty, if, if, if it pleases you, grant me my life. Spare my people. Okay, so she, she, she approaches him. She goes, I'm not telling you what to do. Okay, I realize that I depend on, on your pleasure and your favor to grant my request and my petition. Uh, uh, commentators have referenced interesting detail that in chapter seven, every time that Esther is referenced, she's referenced as the queen. This is done on purpose. Remember, at the beginning of, of last week, she dresses in her royal robe. She puts on her official 
queen garb. She is coming to the king, reminding him, I am not only your wife, I am the queen of this kingdom. She is pulling out all the stops, right? Because she's got this request. And her request is, save me. Give me my life back. Save my people. Okay? Now, you, you've got to imagine at this time that, that the king is a little bit confused. If, if you're just joining us, here's the context. Back in chapter 3, the prime minister, a dude by the name of Haman, gets very upset at Mordecai, the cousin of the queen. He's a Jewish guy. He gets so upset at Mordecai that he convinces the king, let's kill Mordecai and all of the Jews within a year. That's chapter 3. One small detail that the king and the prime minister did not know. They did not know that Esther, the queen, was Jewish. Right or wrong, we don't know why she withholds that information. She does not tell them, I'm Jewish. Right? And so that's what gets this whole problem going and this whole ball rolling. And that's why she comes to the king. They still don't know that she's Jewish. You, you can only imagine right about now, he puts the ribs down, he puts his wine down, he goes, wait, time out. You mean, sweetie, you, you're not Persian? Is that, is that what you're, ta- I don't, I'm not following you. So she, she explains just a little bit more. And now the rubber meets the road. Verse four, let me show you what it says. I and my people have been sold to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. What's interesting about this phrase right here, she's incredibly clever. She uses the exact language from the edict, from the law that was signed just a couple chapters ago. The exact language. She references that her people have been sold because the prime minister has promised to give the king a whole chunk of money. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill off all the Jews. Right. Then I'm going to confiscate their stuff. I'm going to sell it on eBay. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have some garage sales. I'm going to take all that money and I'm going to give it to you. That's the deal. Right. So she references we've been sold. We've been sold not just into slavery, but to be annihilated, to be king. Now, she's got to be very, very careful here. Right. And what she's got to be careful of is, well, she she without openly accusing the king She's implicating him. You don't barge into the king's office, which is essentially what she did a couple of chapters ago, and accuse him of doing something like this. And yet he signed the edict. He made it law. So she's she's treading uh, 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 very, very carefully with her words. Right. And then she adds something that I find rather strange. Watch. She's saying, talking to, her, to the king, her husband. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now, maybe it's just because I'm an American living in the 21st century that that bothers me or I don't understand their culture. But basically, she's saying, you know what, king, if 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 we were just sold into slavery, that's no big deal. I wouldn't have bothered you with it. You know, I know you don't like to be bothered about what color drapes we're putting up in the bedroom. You don't like to be bothered about what we want for dinner. I don't want to bother you with small stuff, right? But when I bring something to you, it's big. She's either, uh, either I don't understand that culture or she's being incredibly 
astute and psychologically smart in what she's doing. In other words, whenever I bring a request to you, King, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Okay, so she spills the beans and now now Xerxes responds and he he blows his top. Let's let's put the next verse up there. Verse five. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who dared to do such a thing. Right. So you're, you're trying to, he still doesn't understand. He still doesn't understand. She's just kind of subtly explained. I'm Jewish. You're going to try and kill all the Jews. It's Haman's fault. Right. And, and she, he says, who is this guy? Where is he? Uh, <clears throat> he's sitting right next to you. <laughs> right. He still hasn't connected the dots. So now imagine, imagine the guy in the background starts playing the synthesizer. The music starts getting tense. So Esther speaks up again. He's an adversary. He's an enemy. He's vile. She's looking at her husband. And then right at the moment she goes, it's Haman. Sorry, I didn't mean you, Terrence, specifically, but that's essentially what happens, right? Oh, it's Haman. Surprise number one, your wife is Jewish and she's going to die. Surprise number two, it's your prime minister's fault. That's what just happened in two minutes at the dinner table. Now, hopefully you know the story. I encourage you to read it week one. Even if you don't, you probably have an inkling that this all turns out well for, for Esther. But I just want you to remember that at this point, end of verse six, she doesn't know what's going to happen. She does not know what's going to happen. She has just accused the king's most trusted and reliable government official, the prime minister. What, what could the king do? You see, he's just as likely to say, oh, my goodness. Oh, I did not know that. I didn't realize that, sweetie. I am so sorry. And I love you. And you are you are hot and gorgeous. That's chapter one, right? She you're hot. But I don't know how to say this. It's going to sound awkward. I. I got a hundred other concubines. I could just get me another wife. I mean, I did it back in chapter one. That's not that big a deal to me. But finding another prime minister, do you know how hard that is? I mean, in our economy, you know, finding someone that has these qualifications and expertise to run the country so I can sit back and drink, that's hard to find. <laughs> right? He could say, he could very easily say that. She doesn't know what's going to happen here. She doesn't know what's what's going to happen. It's interesting how how Haman responds, the prime minister. Let's put verse seven up in verse seven. It says Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. If you got to feel at least a little bit bad for Haman because he's had a horrible day. It started out last week. It started out him going early to the office. He wants to see the king. He wants to get permission to kill Mordecai. He just built this huge gallows all night. He's going to get permission. Not only does he not get permission, but the king doesn't know that they have a grudge with one another. The king was up all night. He had the book of the Chronicles read, which reminded him that Mordecai had saved his life. So he decides to reward him. And he asks Amen. To have him ride, to Mordecai ride, ride around uh, in a horse around the city. Haman's got to walk him around. Hear ye, hear ye. Here is the wonderful Mordecai whom the king loves. And it drives poor Haman crazy. Then he goes home for lunch. 
right? He's having a burrito. He's sitting there. He tells his wife what happened. And his wife says this to him. Oh, man, hubby, you're going to die. Not very encouraging from his wife. As he's eating his burrito and finishing that, he's dragged from his house by the court officials, reminding him, no, this is the time when they're having the second banquet. So he goes to the, you know, he goes, he pretends like he hasn't eaten. He sits down at the banquet and then this happens. He has not had a very good day. And he's terrified. You know why he's terrified? Because if there's anybody that knows the king, it's the prime minister. Honestly, all you have to do is look at history. This Xerxes guy was mean, mean man. He knows, the prime minister knows what he can do. He has no problem getting rid of people. Haman is terrified. The king is a little upset. You see it there? More than a little bit upset. It's not just angry, frustrated. It's the word rage. He's angry. Who's he angry at? Well, he's certainly angry at Haman. Haman essentially, uh, on purpose or not on purpose, tricked him into signing his wife's death warrant. He's, he's got to be upset at the prime minister, right? He, he's probably a little bit upset at himself. How could I? Why didn't I think this through? Why did I so quickly sign it into law? Why did I promote Haman? He's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's made me look foolish in front of my servants, in front of my wife. So he's probably a little bit upset at himself. So off he goes into the garden, into the palace garden. Question is, why? Why does he go to the garden? Some commentators go, well, he's he's trying to blow off some steam. He's trying to calm himself down before he speaks. Uh-uh. That is not what he's doing. This is not a guy who could, he could care less if he blows up in front of other people. He's not going to calm down. He's going into the garden because he's got a dilemma. He's got a problem on his hands. Here's his problem. He, as king, is supposed to be God for the Persian people. And gods don't make mistakes. Who do I pick? Do, do I choose, do I choose to, uh, to take Haman, my prime minister's side, and just dump my wife and get rid of her? Or do I choose my wife's side and choose to, to, to get rid of Haman, to just kill him? Well, that's going to be awkward. How, how's that going to come across? Uh, yeah, we interrupt the Warriors game and uh, we have some breaking news. The king has killed the prime minister. Yes, the king has killed the prime minister. After the Warriors uh, wipe up the Lakers, we will come back to this breaking news. That was just for you, Terrence. How do you explain that? How do you explain that the king kills the prime minister for a law that he signed in, in into, 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 into law? How do you do that? So, so he goes out into the garden. And what you have to imagine is happening is he's pacing. What do I do with this one? I got I to gotta come up with something else to pin, pin on Haman. I got to come up with something altogether different and just kind of accuse him of something that, that you know, what am I going to do? Right. And he's pacing and he's pacing in the garden trying to figure out how to get out. How do I get out of this one? Meanwhile, back at the dinner table, here's what we read in verse eight. OK, Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate. You see, he knows his boss. He knows what his boss wants to do. His boss is just trying to figure out a way to do it. He already has decided his fate. He stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. 
We used to, uh, my family and I, we used to go up to Santa Cruz. Uh, some friends had a house up there. We would go vacation there. A lot of times in the summer, we'd stay there for a week. And, and this, uh, about 10 years ago, this is before we, uh, Julia was born. So it was just mom, dad, Joshua, Jessica. We got up one morning. We decided to have breakfast and play a family Monopoly game, right? So there we sat, but it was teams. It was me and Jess against mom and Joshua. And we were playing and we were having a good time. But if you've ever played the game Monopoly, you know that there comes a point in time in the game where you know you're going to lose you know you're going to lose it's just a matter of time because you look at the board you have just a couple railway stations and the yellow properties the other one the other opponent in this case sandy and josh they have uh, broadway and park plaza and everything else you have a couple houses they have a fleet of hotels you have a little bit of cash they have a big stack of cash, right? And you're, you're hoping that maybe you land, uh, you know, you avoid their hotels and you land perfect. Maybe I'll win. No, you know you're going to lose. You know you're going to die. And it's a slow, painful, agonizing game at that point in time, right? We knew this was happening. And so Jess and I, we whispered to each other and we came up with a plan. The next time we fall on one of their properties that has a bunch of hotels. We had a plan. And so it only take like two or three rolls of the dice. And then we, we landed on, I don't know, Pacific Avenue. And they had three hotels. And they're like, you owe us $700. You know, ah. we're like, what are we going to do? You know, all of a sudden, both Jess and I, we yell, bank robbery. She grabs all the cash from the table. She grabs all of their cash. I run and grab the car keys in our pajamas. We run out to the street. We get in the car and we drive away. All along, they're just going. For effect, we stayed away for 15 minutes. We did. We came back. Josh was like, where's the money? I like, oh, what? My, what? Oh, we spent it. It's gone. And then he says, they both said, that's not very funny. Which actually makes it all the more funny when someone says that. You know what I mean? Question, why did we do that? I mean, other than immaturity, why did we do that? Because we knew we were going to lose. It was just a matter of time before we lost, before we died. And that's how Haman feels. It's just a matter of time. His fate has already been decided. And he knows if there's any hope, I don't go into the garden to talk to the king. I stay back and beg the queen. Right at this moment, the king decides to come back inside. He's not sure what to do yet. And then something happens and everything ends at this one event. Let me show you. Verse eight. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. So imagine he's going over to the. Now, this is not he'd think we eat around a dinner table on chairs. This is Middle East Persia, where they are on low couches, leaning on the ground with tables that are really close to the ground. So he goes over to the queen and he begins to beg to her. And as he's going over there, he twi he trips and he falls on top of her awkwardly. So the king comes in and goes, ah, will you will you molest the queen while she's with me in my house? You 
You're trying to get lucky with my wife? You're trying to put a move on her? You want a piece of this? Everyone knows that it's an accident. Everyone knows. But the servants pick up on this quick. They're like... So they go, as soon as the word left the king's mouth, so they know what he's doing, they covered Haman's face. The king, at this wonderful opportunity for him to blame Haman for something, to kind of exaggerate something and get out of the other problem. So they cover his face. Why do they cover his face? It's, it's what many people do around the world just before someone is executed. They cover their face. You will not see the light of day ever again. And in fact, that's exactly what happens to Haman. Here's how the story ends in verse 9, verse 10. Haman, you see the title. He bites the dust. Harbana, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands right in front of Haman's house. Clearly, this guy, Harbona, does not like the prime minister. He's like, I'm going to get him, right? He had it. He had it set up and built for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. Kill him. So they impaled and killed Haman on the same pole he had set up and built for Mordecai. I read about this guy called Robert Watt. He's a Scotsman that invented radar during uh, wartime. The British government paid him a you know, a bunch of money for this invention, radar, that very much so helped England and the Allies. Um, this uh, Robert Watt tells a story, though, that years after he invented radar, while driving in Canada, he was caught for speeding in a radar trap. And the point he makes is that you hear my own invention came back to bite me, just like here. Haman built something to kill someone and he ended up dying himself on it. Now, before we get to the backside and I give you the application and we wrap this up, let me at least just summarize the last two weeks to make sure if we are finding ourselves in Haman's situation. And he, here's what I want to say. Uh, if you're jotting down notes, it's right at the bottom there of page one. We reap what we sow. That's been the principle for now a week and a half. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. You see it in this story. Haman gets angry at Mordecai couple chapters ago in this chapter the king gets angry at him a couple chapters ago um he he made a big deal out of nothing you know mordecai wouldn't stand up and honor him in this case the king makes a big deal out of nothing he wasn't trying to molest the queen the, the whole point of the last three chapters haman wants this jewish man to bow down to him well what happens in this chapter haman ends up bowing down to a jewish woman you see, in the end, you always get the way you live. You always sow, well, you always reap what you sow. It always comes back. But there's another principle here. It's not just that we reap, reap what we sow. We reap more than we sow. In Matthew, we read, still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. You see, that's what farming is all about. You take some seed... You do this, and before you know it, there's a big crop. And the point is, just like in farming, you and I, by our behavior and actions, we reap more than we sow. And it happens with Haman. First couple chapters, he calls the Jewish people different. They're different. In this chapter, he's called vile and an enemy. You see how the, the, the ante just went up? 
a, a, a couple couple chapters ago, Mordecai covers his face with ash to express grief. In this chapter, Haman's head is covered with a cloth to express you're going to die. A couple chapters ago, Haman wants to kill one man, Mordecai. The next chapter, do you know what happens? Not only has Haman died, but all of his ten sons get killed as well. See, what, what we have to be reminded of is that we always reap more than we sow. Sin always takes more from you than you expected. Sin always hurts more than you expected. That's why the motivation is what, whatever it is you're doing, just expect it's going to get multiplied down the road. Which is the last principle. We reap later than we sow. We reap later. Let us not become weary in doing good for at a proper time we will reap harvest. You know, I'm pastor. I'm living for Jesus. I'm doing, trying to do the right thing. And it seems like I don't get any, anything out of the deal. Be patient. You will. Every single time guaranteed 100% at some point God rewards you every time. The flip side, if those of us are living like Haman... If we are disobeying God, if we are doing things that are wrong, unhealthy or sinful, 100% of the time, guaranteed every time you will have a consequence every single time. So if you're looking at someone at work going, why is that jerk? Why is God letting them get ahead? They're a backstabbing, not nice of a person. Why is God allowing that? Be patient. At some point in time, God will always even up the score. He always issues and gives justice every time my whole point from a summary standpoint of this study is this let's put it up there Um, if you hear god's voice i don't have time right now to give you a list of sins to give you a list of dysfunctional behaviors to give you a list of things you should stop doing but if you take a moment and listen to god the holy spirit more likely than not he whispers And he says, you know that one thing you're doing? You know those things you're saying? You know that one particular behavior? Stop. If you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Why? Because you will reap what you sow. You will reap more than you sow. And at some point in time, you will reap later than you sow. It's coming. But if you're here, you still have a chance to change course directions. Okay. Backside of your study guide. Let me give you three principles. Let's wrap this up. Before I give them to you, I want you to think of, again, I told you someone you're having a conflict with small conflict, big conflict. And I want you to ask yourself, am I applying these principles? Principle number one, when you have an issue with someone, take it first to your king. When you have an issue with someone, take it first to your king. Interesting detail so far in the entire book of Esther. Not one time has Esther gone to Haman and confronted him. Dude, Haman, what are you doing? Why do you want to kill my people? Not once has Mordecai gone to Haman and say, why do we have to argue? Why is it such a big deal that I bow down to you? They've never had direct conversation. Not once. Now, you have to imagine in the story, they probably chit-chatted at least. I mean, if he's been to two banquets with the queen, they probably, hey, pass the potatoes, right? But in the text, there's no mention of direct conversation between them two. What's the point? The point is this. Esther has an issue with Haman. But her instinct before she goes to Haman 
is to go to the king. And so should be your instinct to go to the king of kings. So my question is this to go to Jesus. And you see it there. I've explained it. We, we call that prayer. Have you spent a significant amount of time talking to God about that person and that issue that you have? It's a big deal. If you if you figure out why, why isn't this not getting fixed? It could be as simple as you are not going to the king of kings, Jesus, and asking them for the wisdom and the effectiveness and the strength. See, that's the point of prayer. Wisdom, effectiveness, and strength. Let me give you from a pictorial position and perspective what I mean here and how it's representing your life. Let's put this first picture up here. Right side of the screen. This is your life without prayer. Left side of the screen. This is your life with prayer. Any questions? You see, more strength, more perspective, greater ability to accomplish. Let me give you another idea and picture. If you want to move some sand, right side of the screen, this is your life without prayer. Left side of the screen, this is your life with prayer. If you want to go on a trip, let me give you another picture. Right side of the screen, that's what you get if you choose to do it on your own. Left side of the screen, that's what you get with prayer. I think I have a couple more. Let's put the next one up there. Oh, well, there you go. Yes, Seth. Thank you very much. This is my favorite time in the whole season because we're all in first place. Okay, let me give you one more. Let me give you one more. You know, that is not only cute, but it actually powerfully communicates what I'm trying to explain. Because I don't know about you, but life is heavy. Isn't it? There's house issues. There's family issues. There's kid issues. There's finances issues. There's health issues. There's job issues. There, I mean, country, I mean, it just goes on. Life can get very heavy. So my question, which picture best represents how you're handling life? Just could I encourage you? If you got an issue with someone, take it to your king first. Follow Esther's lead on this. Trust, trust her. Trust God. A a couple quotes, and I'm going to wrap up and and go to the next principle. Oswald Chambers says, uh, we pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. I love this next quote by Stan Mikalski. Don't put people down unless it's on your prayer list. That's very clever, good turn of phrase, okay? Second principle, real quick, is be discerning to know when it's appropriate to bite your tongue. For three chapters now, Esther has bit her tongue. She wanted to say something and has not for this entire time, right? And and, and there's a time to speak. And then there's a time to bite your tongue. There's a time to shut up. God brought some of you to church today to tell you one thing. Shut up. That issue you're having, you're talking too much or you're talking too soon. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, the prudent hold their tongues. James chapter 1, verse 19, be quick to listen, slow to speak, bite your tongue. Ecclesiastes 3, 7, there's a time for everything. There's a time to be silent. Don't say it yet. And then eventually there will be a time to speak. Do you know someone that can't do this? They can't bite their tongue and invariably they always say something, they always contribute and it tends to lead to arguments and conflict. Do you know people like that? I I heard this story about four 
four presidents of four major beer corporations. They were at a convention and they went out to lunch, right? And there are these four presidents, one from Budweiser, one from Miller, one from Coors, and one from Guinness, which is an Irish beer. And they were all having, so getting ready for lunch and, and just, you know, the waitress comes and the, the, the president from Miller orders a Miller beer. The, the president from Budweiser orders a Bud. The president from Coors orders a Coors. The president from Guinness orders a soda. And, and the other guys are like, aren't you going to have a Guinness? Aren't you going to have a beer? He goes, nah, if you guys aren't having a beer, then neither will I. <laughs> some of you are like, oh, that's a good one. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> See, some of us just don't know how to shut up. Right? There's a time to bite your tongue. Maybe it's because you have to do principle number one. Okay? The last principle is this one. What you say, that's content. How you say it, that's tone or attitude. And when you say it, matters a lot. It matters. We just focus on the first part, the content. Content is certainly important, but there's so much more to communicating effectively. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love. There's nothing wrong with being direct. There's nothing wrong with being clear. There's nothing wrong with being blunt. As long as your motivation and as long as your tone and attitude is right, it's done in love. I mean, how many of us, when we were teenagers, what would dad say to you? Don't sass mom. It's not what we're saying. It's how we're saying it. See, here's the thing. Some of us haven't grown out of that yet. We think we're allowed to be blunt and clear, but you're also, we're also being rude. Be clear, speak the truth, but do it in love. Proverbs 15, 28, the godly thinks carefully before speaking. Every single week, I have an appointment with you to have a conversation with you that lasts about 40 to 42 minutes. It's called a sermon. It's a rather important part of what I do here at the church, rather important part of what happens at Bay Hills. Every single week, I will spend a minimum of 10 hours all the way up to 20 hours thinking carefully what I'm going to say to you. 10 to 20 hours every week. Some of you have very important conversations to have with loved ones, co-workers, people, friends. How much time are you carefully thinking about what you're going to say? Carefully thinking. How many of us are planning what we're going to say? What order we're going to say it? it you know, I, I come up here and I try not to rely. I have four pages today. Because I want to make sure I don't get distracted. I go on tangents. Have you ever had a conversation with someone? Maybe a clarifying, confrontational type of a conversation. And after you leave, there was a whole chunk you forgot to mention. Has that ever happened to you? That's why it's important to write things down. And remember, oh yeah, there's one other thing I want to mention. Carefully think it through. Proverbs 13, verse 2. The good man wins his case by careful argument. You see, one of the things that, that communicators study is it's not just the content that matters. It's the presentation. The point of a story is not to get you to laugh. The point of the story is to help you understand and assimilate the point. And it happens the same in life. The whole conclusion is Proverbs 13, 23. Intelligent people who speak in love, think carefully and careful argument, think before they speak, what they say is persuasive. That's the whole point. You're trying to be persuasive. 
There's a story. You guys ever seen the in, in Rio de Janeiro? They have that big Jesus statue on the top of the hill. It's a very even if you've not been to Brazil, they have the big Rio Jesus. Well, there's a, there's a similar one, not so high. It's called the Christ of the Andes, and it's right between Chile and Argentina. And it, they, 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 these two countries decided to build it um, as a way of expressing that they were going to be at peace as countries. They were not going to have conflict or war between these two countries. So they built this big Christ of the Andes, they called it, right? It was, wasn't until the, the statue was completed that they began to have conflict. The problem was that when it was built, Jesus was facing towards Argentina and had his back towards Chile. And the people of Chile is like, that's not fair. You know, we get to see, you know, you guys get to see Jesus face. We get to see his backside. That is not fair. And it caused conflict and politicians were going at each other and the tensions were rising until one newspaper reporter in the capital city of Chile for the major newspaper wrote an editorial. He diffused everything and the people of Chile not only chuckled, but they stopped complaining. And I'm going to read to you one line from what he said, quote, The statue of Christ faces Argentina because the people of Argentina need more watching over than the people of Chile. (laughs) And they were like, yeah, that sounds right. We'll just let it go. (laughs) Part of becoming mature is learning how to effectively deal with conflict. So my little challenge to you is keep working at it. Okay. For the sake of your family For the sake of your work, for the sake of our church, keep working at being good when it comes to conflict resolution. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for how practical God's word is. Thank you so much uh, for the example of Esther. Father, for each and every one of us, for the little issues and conflicts we have, we pray that uh, you would guide us, help us apply these principles. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last 10 minutes of our service are about conflict. They're about the conflict between mankind and God created when we chose to sin. And um, that conflict created separation between God and man. But because of Jesus and because of the cross, if you embrace Jesus, that separation can can be gone and you can have a relationship with him. We call that salvation or being born again or becoming a Christian or whatever you want to call it. We are told in God's word that we are to celebrate that that conflict is gone and we're to celebrate by taking of communion or the Lord's Supper. When we remember what Jesus Christ did for us when his blood was shed and his body was broken for our sin and for that conflict. You don't have to be a member of Bay Hills to participate, but you do have to have given your life to Jesus Christ. As I was studying this past week, one commentator said this. He said, the gallows had a reserved for Mordecai sign on them, just like the cross has a reserved sign, a reserved for Christ sign on it. The pole that was meant for Mordecai was eventually occupied by Haman. The cross that was meant for us was eventually occupied by Jesus. Could I, could I encourage you? Um, don't forget how special what the bread and the cup represents. For those of us who've grown up in church, we've done this so many times. Right about now, you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or 
we're getting out of here and what's happening tomorrow at work. And I just want to encourage you for the next eight minutes. Be captured by the awe of how much Jesus loved you on the cross. We're going to pray. And then at any point in time during the next couple songs, you're more welcome to go to the tables and take of the bread and the cup. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his love for us, his infinite love that allowed us to be connected to God. Father, we celebrate the bread and the cup, reminding us that you did that because of our sin, because of the conflict that exists as a result of disobeying you. So as we take the bread and the cup, we will take a moment to acknowledge you, to thank you, and to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.